The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. We'll go ahead and turn in your copy of Scripture to the book of Amos. I believe it will be on page 716 if you're using the Pew Bible in front of you. Go ahead and stand to your feet. We're going to read God's Word and we're going to honor the God of the Word in this way. So this is Amos chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. And then if you'll maybe get your thumbs ready to flip a couple pages over to Amos chapter 7, we're also going to read verses 10 through 17. What you find here in these verses are really the only information that we get on this brother, Amos. And so we're going to turn our attention to him and the start of this letter by reading these verses. Amos chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. Amos 7, verses 10 through 17. Hear the word of the Lord. The words of Amos who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. And he said, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn and the top Of Carmel withers. Go ahead and flip in your Bibles now over to Amos chapter 7, verses 10 through 17. In the middle of Amos 7, chapter 7, there, there's this little biographical tidbit that we get about Amos as he has an interaction with a man named Amaziah, who was the priest of Bethel. He was a priest of the northern king of Israel. Listen to how this interchange goes down. Verse 10. Amos chapter 7. Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent to Jeroboam, king of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all his words. For thus Amos has said, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel must go into exile away from his land. And Amaziah said to Amos, O seer, go, flee away to the land of Judah and eat bread there and prophesy there, but never again prophesy at Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary and it is a temple of the kingdom. Then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet, nor a prophet's son, but I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go, prophesy to my people Israel. Now, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. You say, Do not prophesy against Israel, and do not preach against the house of Isaac. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Your wife shall be a prostitute in the city, 
and your sons and your daughters shall fall by the sword, and your land shall be divided up with a measuring line. You yourself shall die in an unclean land, and Israel shall surely go into exile away from its land. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can be seated. Sermon title this morning is uh, Ordinary Man, Extraordinary Message. Ordinary Man, Extraordinary Message, and really that is the uh, big idea that's going to linger over the book of Amos as we work over it for the next several weeks and months to come. The main idea I think you can hang your thoughts on this morning from these verses, we're going to stitch together these realities, these little biographical insights that we get into Amos with this main idea. The Lord God uses ordinary people to proclaim his extraordinary message. Ordinary people, extraordinary message. This is the way God delights to work in this world so that people can know him, see their sin, repent of their sin, and find redemption, find grace, find mercy in Yahweh, the living God. Yahweh loves to use ordinary people to proclaim the extraordinary message of good news, of grace and mercy found in the God who saves. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray for us this morning. I'm going to ask that God would empower the preaching of his word, and then we're going to dive headlong right into the text, okay? So join me in prayer as we go to our, to our God. Father, we need you to speak. There are words before us. I'm going to speak words from my mouth We want the gospel to be magnified. We want your power through the preaching of your word to be witnessed. We want the power of the Holy Spirit to take words proclaimed from a preacher to penetrate hearts. We want to see that this morning. We want our hearts to be convicted by the words we're going to to read and hear this morning. I am powerless to do any of the above. We need you, living God, to drench us this morning. We need you, Holy Spirit, to immerse us this morning, immerse this time, immerse me, Holy Spirit, almost set me aside so that as I speak and as I proclaim, it's as if the living God himself were speaking, speaking through me. Father, our aim right now is to set you at the center. And so by your strength and by your might, would you use me as an instrument in your hand so that I would be merely a messenger who proclaims the message of our living God for the great fame and for the glory of the name of our living God. It's in your name we pray these things, King Jesus. Amen. Well, here we are in the book of Amos on Slack. I've been doing my best to help prepare you guys for what is going to be coming over the next several months to come. If you took, up, took me up on my encouragement over um, the weeks leading up to this morning, I've been heavily encouraging you guys to go and read Amos. Amos is a unique book. Amos is a book we don't often read. 
Amos is a book that is full of place names and people. It's full of prose. It's full of poetry. And what you are going to discover if you haven't read it yet ahead of time, and for those of us who have read ahead of time, what you're going to discover is that we got some interesting weeks ahead. We've got some interesting weeks that are going to come. But what I believe you're going to find is that this Old Testament book has a very contemporary ring to it. God has spoken through his word. And he has spoken a very clear word to his people through the prophet Amos. And what you're going to find is that the subject matters that Amos was called to speak to because God's people had drifted from are not problems for God's people that were only Old Testament problems. What you're going to find is that the Old Testament problems of God's people then are still problems that exist today. And through the prophet Amos, what we're going to find is a very very contemporary message, one that will more times than not come with the serrated edge of a prophet's voice. If you've read ahead in the book of Amos, what you are going to find is this. Almost the entire nine chapters of Amos is a proclamation of judgment. It's only the last five verses of chapter 9 where you see the glimpse and the glimmer and the hope of the grace and the mercy to come. For some of us, we don't like that message. But what you need to know is that this is a message delivered by God. And according to 2 Peter chapter 1, Amos was carried along by the Holy Spirit to proclaim a very heavy message of judgment to come. The reason why is because he's speaking to a people who are hard of heart, hard of hearing. They have sin-deadened hearts. And their hearts need to be pierced and laid open so they can see just how far they have drifted from the living God. Because what you're going to find is that they think they are right with God because of mere external religious actions. They're going to claim to be very religious. They're going to claim to be very right with God. But Amos is going to come speaking the word of the Lord saying you're actually placing your hope in a false hope and you need to be awakened to the reality that if you continue to go in the direction that you go, judgment will be waiting for you on that final day. And so we are going to be awakened, I feel, repeatedly through these spirit-inspired words that the prophet Amos is going to speak over the next several weeks and months to come. And my encouragement is this. Maybe you just adopt the book of Amos for the several weeks to come and you just dig in, dive in, and own it because you will be served by committing these words to your head and to your heart. So what are we going to do this morning? We're going to stitch together some key ideas from these two chapters, chapter 1 and chapter 7. And there's really three questions I want to put before us to really give us the foundation that we're going to rest on before we go forward for the next several months. And it's going to be questions about who was Amos, what was his setting, and what was the point of his message, okay? So the first question is this, concerning the man Amos. Who was Amos? Look at verse 1. Look at the front end of verse 1, where Amos chapter 1 reads such as this. The words of Amos, 
who was among the shepherds of Tekoa. If you know your New Testament and you were going into 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27, what we learn from the Apostle Paul in that verse is that God loves, he deliberately loves to choose the foolish things of the world to confound the wisdom of this world. Amos was just such a man. Apart from the book named after him, we know nothing else about Amos the prophet. But what we do learn and what we do know is that Amos was an extremely unlikely candidate to be the man proclaiming this message before us. In chapter 1, verse 1, we read that Amos was a shepherd, a shepherd from a town called Tekoa. Later in chapter 7, verse 14, one of those verses that we read this morning, Amos doubles down on the ordinary nature of who he was, about the ordinary nature of his background when he has that conversation, that confrontation with Amaziah the priest, and he tells Amaziah the priest, yes, it's true, I was a herdsman, I'm a sheep herder, but what you also need to know is that I'm a dresser of sycamore figs. In other words, he's a fig farmer. So you have a sheep herder, a fig farmer from the southlands of Judah who has the call of Yahweh placed upon his life to go to the northern kingdom with a message that my people need to hear. So what, what this tells us when we read about Amos, he's, a, he's an ordinary man. He's a common laborer of his day. If you were to pull Amos out and bring him up on stage and say, here's his resume. Here's what qualifies him to be this guy. Look at all his, all his qualifications. Look at all what, what makes him adequate to do this. There would be nothing there necessarily to say, this guy's the obvious candidate to be the one who's going to go up into the northern kingdom and proclaim, thus says the Lord. Nothing like that is ascribed to Amos. He's just a sheep herder. He's just a a fig farmer. Yet ordinary as he may be, what we see is that he was a man who had a call on his life. That's what you see there in verses 14 and 15 when you go over into Amos chapter 7. Amos admits the unlikely nature of what he was doing. If you remember what we said, he's like, listen, man, I was, I was no prophet. I wasn't the son of a prophet. I was just a herdsman. I was a dresser of sycamore figs. But what you need to know is that the Lord took me. It wasn't like he just showed up and said, you know what? I think Israel could probably use a really sharp message of judgment. So I'm just going to self-anoint and just roll north and begin to say, thus says the Lord. He says, no, 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 no. The Lord is the one who took me. I was just following the flocks down there in Tekoa, but the Lord took me, verse 15, and the Lord said to me, go, prophesy to my people in Israel. So Amos was, there he was one minute, minding his own business, and in the next minute, God grabbed him and said the words, go. In other words, Amos was no professional. Everything you're going to read from now until we come to the end of Amos chapter 9 was not coming from someone that you would have figured it would have come from. He's not from the priestly class. He's not from the prophet schools. Ordinary, common laborer. But notice that instead of using his background and lack of formal training as an excuse to disobey God, Amos trusted, heard, obeyed, and went. 
And as Christians who claim King Jesus as Savior and Lord, this little example that we get from Amos, we can learn a lot from this Old Testament prophet. Notice that he demonstrated a willingness to be obedient to God's call quite despite his inadequacies. Yet far too many followers of Jesus Christ demonstrate a willingness to be disobedient to God's call because of their inadequacies. Surely you've heard these things before, like, well, God can't be calling me to do this. Well, I can't share Jesus with this person. After all, I haven't had the training. I don't have the right words. I'm not sure how to speak. But Amos steps up as the example of God grabbing him, taking him, giving him an open door of opportunity and saying, because I have called you, I will equip you. You need to walk forward in obedience. Don't disobey because everything in your life seems to say you're inadequate. No, actually own your inadequacies, step forward in them, walk in obedience and look at how I show my glory, my power, my strength. Again, far too often we are tempted to believe that God only calls people who are especially gifted or especially talented to serve him. And in believing this lie, we excuse ourselves from obeying God, obeying the Amos-like call to go. Surely there's been times in your life where you have said no to God because you bought the lie, I'm not equipped enough to speak a good word for Jesus Christ in this moment. It's like we become amnesiacs in those moments who fail to remember the gospel principle that God chooses what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chooses what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chooses what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Why? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Listen, for his glory, God equips those whom he calls. And he loves to call the inadequate. Why? So that when the inadequate step in that moment and go, it's not me, but I'm speaking the words of Christ to you so that when people see that, they don't go, well, of course he has more degrees than Fahrenheit. Look at how good he can speak. He's an awesome orator. He's a great communicator. He has a thousand tools on his belt. Of course he's doing this. No, no, no. God pulls in the inadequate. He calls the foolish. He calls the weak. He calls the low. He calls the despised so that in that moment, the foolish ones and the eyes of the world empowered by the living God speak and everyone goes that thing's of God that thing's of God not you but of God and Amos stands as an example of that kind of man my guess is that Amos knew this truth very very intimately Amos knew the truth that he should have probably been the last person to be called, but he did not use his inadequacy as an excuse. He saw his inadequacy as an opportunity to walk in obedience to God, saying, if anything's going to happen, it's going to be the living God through me that's going to accomplish this. And what we can do as brothers and sisters in Christ 
is learn to grow and embrace this same kind of truth intimately as well. So that's Amos. That's the man. But what was the setting? What was Amos' situation? Okay, great. The guy has a call in his life. God took him, said go, and he went. But what was the setting? Why did he need to go? What was going on that required a prophet to be empowered by the living God to go and speak? What was the setting? What was Amos' situation? Look at the end of verse 1. We get a little clue here. The words of Amos, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. You see, it's important to to know, I think, three things about the times that Amos was living in. So not only like the geographic chronological time, it was about mid-700s B.C., about 760 B.C., but sort of like what was the flavor of the times, right? Uh, Dickens, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Like what was sort of the flavor, what was the atmosphere of the situation that Amos found himself in? I think three things will help ground us going forward in the weeks to come. One has to do with military, one has to do with economy, one has to do with religion. So it's important to note those three things. First, that it was a time of military superiority that Amos was going to be preaching his message in. It's important to know that during the time of Amos' ministry, the dominant world power at the time was the Assyrian Empire. Fortunately for Israel and Judah, the Assyrians were busy elsewhere defending their kingdom, and therefore the two kingdoms were left to themselves. So sort of the big bully on the world stage is the Assyrians. Their kingdom's being attacked by someone else, so they have to divert their attention to protecting their kingdom. And with Assyria's attention diverted off of the kingdom of Israel in the north and the kingdom of Judah in the south, guess what gets to happen now? With no bully on the scene, they get to just do things however they want to do things. And their military begins to flourish. The result of Assyria being busy in another part of the world was that military expansion exploded for the northern and the southern kingdom of Israel and Judah. So under Jeroboam's leadership in the north, Israel expanded its borders far to the north. The same happened under Uzziah's leadership in the south. In fact, during the reign of these two kings, what happens is the military successes achieved by these two monarchies leads to the people of God nearly controlling as much land as King Solomon did. So if you go into your Bible, you know your Bible like the golden age, the height of the people of God was under King Solomon and money was flowing like wine, gold and silver was so common that it just became like something that everybody had. The, the, the ground, the borders of Israel had stretched the farthest that they'd ever stretched. After Solomon steps down, the kingdom divides into two. They've never controlled as much land until now. Until this time when Amos steps on the scene and the people are feeling good about this. The point to understand is that they would have put a lot of stock in like, look what we've done. We've gone back to the golden age and we've accomplished it in our own strength by exercising our military might to bring about all these things that used to be lost. 
So it was a time of military superiority that led to a kind of self-boasting apart from God. The second thing to know is this, is that it was a time of economic prosperity. So hand in hand with the expansion of their borders, the kingdoms of Judah and Israel were experiencing an explosion of material wealth. The key word of the day for Amos was the, was the word prosperity. With Assyria preoccupied and their borders expanded, trade opened up in every single direction for these, for these people. People were becoming wealthy hand over fist. Life under the two kings was good. Their leadership up, ushered in an economic revival. An extremely wealthy class had developed and they were enjoying their wealth to the max. Fine food, exquisite surroundings, filled winter homes, filled summer homes of the affluent. Not since the time of Solomon had so many people in the north and the south kingdoms experienced such good fortune. And no doubt that many would have looked around and said, look at how our military is just grabbing all these borders back to us. Look at how much money is flowing now. Look at how wealthy we are. Look at all the things that we get. Look at how there's no troubles. Look at the fortune. Look at the good. Look at the prosperity. And they would have equated that one for one to the proof that God's pleasure was on them because of this economic blessing. But as we will see from Amos, the people of Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel, they were absolutely mistaken in their understanding. Listen, friends. Financial blessing is no sure sign of God's pleasure in you. Just because things are going good and things are going well doesn't mean that God is up in heaven like some some boyfriend in love with you plucking the petals on his flower going, oh, how he loves me, how he lo- oh, I, I love him, just look. And the proof is in how much economic prosperity they have. Too many people equate life going well as God and me are good. It was to a people who felt more secure, listen, it was to a people who felt more secure both militarily and financially than they had felt in quite a number of years that God sent Amos to preach a message of impending judgment and impending destruction. So think about it. The, the prophets didn't show up when times were bad. The times are awesome. Like really, really awesome. If you go and read 2 Chronicles 25 and 26, if you go and read 2 Kings 14, the times are very, very good and most people will go, obviously God is happy with us. And that's the time God says, Amos plucks him, sends him to the north and says to his people, you need to know this, your economic prosperity is no sure sign of my good pleasure in you. Why? It's because economic prosperity had caused the prosperous to turn in on themselves and turn away from God. There they found themselves living the good life. And the conclusion that it's easy to draw for people who have affluence, who have prosperity, who have material wealth, is to draw the conclusion, I don't really need God. And that's exactly what happened to the northern kingdom of Israel. 
their prosperity caused them to turn inward, and in turning inward upon themselves, they turned away from the living God, but in their blindness, they didn't see it. You're going to read over and over again. I think it's in chapter 2, it's in chapter 5, it's in chapter 4, it's in chapter 6, it's in chapter 8. Amos is going to come after those who are the wealthy, the prosperity that they have taken in and had really made their God. Why? Is it because there's something innately evil with having wealth? No. But their wealth had become their God. And because wealth had become their God, affluence had become their God, material goods had become their God, they needed to be wakened up because what you're going to read in Amos chapter 5 in a very poignant section, what you find is that part of the mentality of the day for the people of God was this. On their lips was, we cannot wait for the day of the Lord to come. Day of the Lord, hasten. Day of the Lord, come. It's going to be a phenomenal day because in their mind, obviously God is good with us. Look at how much blessing we have. And Amos steps on the scene and says, you are sorely mistaken because the day of the Lord is not going to go the way you think it's going to go because your God is not God. Your God is your wealth. Your God is the economic prosperity, the God that you serve and love as evidenced by your life is not Yahweh, the lion who roars. They were addicted to the world of commerce. They couldn't wait for the markets to open. You see that in Amos 8. When will the new moon be over that we may sell grain and the Sabbath be ended? This intoxication with affluence was so strong that they were happy to cheat people to gain more wealth you see this in Amos 8, 5 as well. In the marketplace, they were skimping the measure, boosting the price, and cheating people with dishonest scales. Why? So they could get more, more of what they loved, get more of their God. And on top of this, their enchantment with wealth led them to oppress the poor to gain more wealth. They were happy to sell their fellow Israelites into slavery, buying the poor with silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. In doing this, they were guilty of denying justice as they would trample on the heads of the poor as upon the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. If they could sell one of their fellow Israelites to get a little bit more cash, happy to do so. If they could be unjust to gain a little bit more affluence, they would do it in a nanosecond. Throughout Amos... We're going to witness the prophet lay bare Israel's bribery, their greed, their oppression, their immorality. He's going to call out the lazy, heartless, self-indulgent women of Israel. Listen, I'm telling you, man, if you haven't, you've done yourself a disservice if you ain't dug into Amos yet. All right, Amos chapter 4, verse 1, he's going to come out with a little sermon that begins with this. Listen up, you cows of Bashan. And he's talking to the ladies of Israel. It's like, you don't usually lead off as a pastor like calling women cows, right? But that's what he's going to do. He's trying to pierce hard hearts and grab their attention. He's going to ultimately expose Israel's love of gluttony, Israel's love of drunkenness, Israel's love of luxury. In short, wealth was their God, but that did not stop them from keeping up the pretense of being religious. This is sort of mind-blowing. Most people who make money their God don't want anything to do with Jesus, don't want anything to do with God. Not them. 
They were happy to say, I'm going to give myself over to getting as much as I can, economic prosperity, but we don't want to let that stop us from going to church, partaking in the things that we are supposed to partake in religiously as the people of Israel. So what you'll find is that even though it was a time of booming economic prosperity and wealth had become their God, it was also a time of extreme religious activity. They were some of the most religious people, even though they did not have a true and genuine love for God. By several accounts through Amos, these were very religious times. The problem is that it was an empty religion. Israel wanted a foot in the world, and they wanted a foot in with God. Whenever someone attempts a divided relationship with God, though, like this, guess what's going to happen? The world is always going to win. You can't divide. Jesus is going to say, you can't serve two masters. You can't serve manna. You can't serve money. You can't serve me. You can't try to have two kings ruling on the throne of your heart. They were trying to serve two kings, and they were divided. And the thing is, whenever you settle in and try to say, I will pursue Jesus by having more than just him alone on the throne of my heart, what always happens is the thing that you sort of made room to come and sort of rule next to Jesus on your heart, that thing will eventually turn to Jesus, boot him off the throne, and that thing will become what you will serve. Israel wanted that du- duplicitous way of life. But listen, the curse of a divided heart is that we will eventually become complacent with sin. No matter how religious we may be on the exterior or how spiritual we may claim to be with our lips, listen, a divided heart is a hypocritical heart. And this is exactly where the people of Israel had found themselves. They were happy to cling to the words of Moses, but only the words that best suited them. They were happy to fill their lives with worship songs and tithes and going to church and gathering with God's people, but they were also simultaneously happy to live however they wanted to live, to suit their own preferences, to suit their own standards, to satisfy their own cravings and their own lusts. In the word of one brother, I thought this was incredible. Listen to this. I think he sums it up great here about the religious activity. I think you're going to find it has a very contemporary ring to it. Describing the people of Israel, they had created an image of God in their minds that suited their purposes but contradicted reality. You ever met somebody who says, yeah, man, me and Jesus were good. Then you start talking to them and you find out that their definition of who Jesus is has nothing to do with the Bible. People consistently are good with a Jesus that they have crafted in their own image. Because everyone wants sort of a guru. Everyone wants sort of a good guy on their side that will give them what they want. Israel had done the same. Their perverted theology and misrepresentation, this brother continues on, of God led to false hopes. They had deluded themselves into thinking that they were secure and right with God when, in fact, they were in danger and far from him. The ease at which they sinned against God clearly showed that their religion didn't mean anything to them at all. Again, we've bumped into people over and over again who will claim to be right with God. They might even utter the name of Jesus on their lips. 
but the manner of their life, the fruit of their life, revealed the bad fruit of a heart unconverted, no matter how much they might profess with their lips. Jesus is my king. That's why you see in James chapter 2, he brings these things together and says, our lives will reflect the reality of what we say we believe. There's a lot of people who go around saying, look at the faith that I have. But then their life is void of anything that looks like an actual life that's been bent into submission, happy, joyful submission to the king who is not only savior but lord. A lot of people want Jesus as Savior. A lot of people don't like Jesus as Lord. But the thing is, if you don't have him as Savior and Lord, he's he's not your king. No one's going to look at the king and go, I'm happy for the saving part of you, but you know that whole submission to you as Lord kind of thing? I'm not really down with that. There's areas of my life that I'm going to live in happy submission to me as Lord. The thing is, the Bible has a lot to say about that. And the people of Israel needed to be awakened to these things. In their eyes... All outward appearances pointed to blessing. According to their own standard, everything led them to believe that as a nation they were good with God, but never would they have guessed that they were just a short 40 years away from the destruction and deportation to Assyria. I told you that in 760 BC, roughly is when Amos is preaching, in 722 Assyria comes, wipes them out, pulls them away into exile, and the northern kingdom never comes back again. 40 years. That's a short amount of time. They had no clue. Everything would have said that reality is impossible. But that's why Amos was going to speak with pointed words and call them to wake up and see. Listen, in a nutshell, the state of Israel at the time of Amos can be described like this. Militarily strong, materially well off, Socially unjust, theologically vacuous. Listen to this again. Militarily strong, materially well off, socially unjust, theologically vacuous. And friends, I don't think it's a very far leap to say those four categories could describe the nation in which we live today. And the truth be told, that can be said of our day. Many say they are spiritual. Many claim to be religious. Many confidently declare, God knows my heart. Me and God are good. Or they go so far as to claim Jesus is Lord with their lips, but ultimately deny him with their actions. And for this reason, I believe we are going to discover that Amos has an extremely contemporary ring to it as we go through Amos in the days to come. So what was the point? What was was his message? Three things, and then we're done. Look at verse 2. And he said, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastors of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers. So what can we say concerning Amos' message? First, Amos' message was from God. You see that right there. He doesn't show up and say, all right, guys, 
Here's just my words, and I want you to pay attention. He says, no, the Lord roars from Zion. And then notice that immediately he starts to go into, thus says the Lord, thus says the Lord, thus says the Lord. That's going to be the echo refrain of Amos. His message was a message from God. Second, Amos' message was courageous. Notice that Amos ain't going to soft-pedal nothing. He's going to come with the serrated edge of a man that's got a word from the Lord, and it is going to pierce hearts deeply. He's going to boldly speak a message that would not be received well, but Amos have had that decision, I suppose. Will I water down God's word for these people in order to be liked by these people, or will I unashamedly stand on the thus says the Lord and proclaim a message that I know comes from him, whether people like it or not? That was the decision he had, and Amos shows us that He was courageous and boldly spoke what God called him to speak. But then third, Amos' message came with a roar. Did you notice that there? Very interesting way to describe that there in verse 2. Remember, Amos was a man. And what was one of his uh, occupations? He was a shepherd. So Amos the preacher is going to speak from experiences that he knows to convey the word of the Lord. So as a shepherd... The roar of a lion meant that it was about to pounce on its prey. And if anyone would know the foreboding nature of a lion's roar, it would be Amos. I don't know if you've ever been anywhere before where you've heard like an actual full-grown lion roar, but it is something bone-chilling and fearsome. I've heard it once. When we were living in Louisville, we would go to the zoo, and one of my famous or one of my favorite displays was the lion's. Because there was just one, one lion, big old bushy head of hair, man, big old mane. And right about sundown, if you timed him right in the evening, he would come out and there's this giant pit that separates the people from the area where the lions are living. And there's this big stone area where sometimes you could see them sunbathing. And that big male lion would come out and stand on there and open his mouth and he would just let it rip, man. Just let it rip. I have never heard something so magnified in my life come out of something seemingly so, so small. I mean, it's just an animal, but it sounded like somebody had amplified his, his roar to the, to the 10th time. It's just like that loudness can't be coming from that thing. And what Amos knows is that when lions are doing that, usually what that means as a shepherd, he's like, I better go count the sheep because that thing is about ready to take something out. Like, that's what a lion's roar means to me as a shepherd. And so Amos shows up in the northern kingdom proclaiming that God was about to descend in judgment and that Israel would be as helpless in God's hands as a lamb in the clutch of a lion. Amos 3.12, thus says the Lord, as the shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion Two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the people of Israel be who dwell in Samaria. If you've ever seen the remains of a sheep after a lion has gotten a hold of it, completely mangled, annihilated. All you're going to find is a piece of an ear and maybe two leg bones hanging around. And what he's saying is that's the way Israel is going to be if they do not repent and believe. In short, Israel was treating Yahweh like a tame lion like a toothless lion. But as C.S. Lewis was careful to remind his readers, some of you are like, man, when are you you going to get to the C.S. Lewis quote, right? 
Aslan, the lion, it's got to be coming at some point in time. You've waited, and now the time has come. C.S. Lewis was careful to remind his readers, God is not that type of lion. In the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, you remember the interaction between Mr. Beaver and the kings and the queens? What he said to them was, listen, Aslan doesn't like being tied down. And of course, he has other countries to attend to. It's all right. He'll often drop in. Only you must not press him. He's wild, you know, not like a tame lion. You're going to find yourself grabbing the wrong end of the, of the stick if you try to approach the living God tame and toothless. What you need to know is that Israel had domesticated God into a tame and toothless lion. And Amos was there to say, please wake up. For the good of your soul, please wake up. He is not tame. He is not toothless. The Lord is roaring from Zion. And he is not to be trifled with. Because of your sin, judgment is coming. Yahweh is the God of righteousness, and in his justice, he will give sin exactly what it deserves. Therefore, hear the lion's roar, turn to him in true heartfelt repentance. In Romans chapter 11, verse 22, the Apostle Paul stitches together two very unlikely characteristics concerning our living God. When he says, note the kindness and the severity of our God. The kindness and the severity of our God. And in Amos, we see these two traits displayed together. In his kindness, God sent Amos to proclaim a message of looming severity to awaken a sin-deadened people to see their need for the God of their redemption. This is not judgment for the sake of just judgment. This is judgment that's meant to pierce heart, open eyes, and flee to the God who loves to redeem. Friends, this is the message. This is the burden that was upon the heart and lips of the prophet Amos. The lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, who but can prophesy? With Amos' message of judgment, we actually see the mercy and grace of our living God on display. God raised up a fig farmer, sheep herder to go into Israel with a message of judgment so that sin-deadened hearts, sin-closed eyes would be awakened to see the salvation that is there for them in the God who loves to redeem sinners. It's God's kindness to impart a message of severity on a prophet so that people would see their sin, repent and believe and flee to the living God. And my prayer and my hope in the days to come is that the Lion of Judah will use his word in Amos to make us feel our desperate need for this same mercy and for this same grace. Let's pray. Father, we come to you with humble hearts. We come to you recognizing we need you every hour. There's no hour that goes by that we don't need you. Now, we often attempt to live as though we, we don't need you every hour. And we often find ourselves, as a result, treading the path that the kingdom of Israel often did. God, pierce our hearts. Help us to see our absolute desperate need for the living God. 
the God who sent His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die on the cross, resurrect from the grave, defeating Satan, sin, and death, so that the Lion of the tribe of Judah, our Lord Jesus Christ, could roar from Zion, expose our sin, awaken us to our need, draw us to Him so that we might repent, believe, and find salvation in none other than our King. God, begin this work in us. Prepare our hearts to receive this prophetic message from Amos over the weeks to come. For your name, for your glory. Amen.